Today's sermon comes from Isaiah 8 and 9. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, for you far countries, strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There was a website project that was designed to be a place where people could share their life experiences. And so visitor, visitors would come to this website and be invited to share their experiences by responding to certain questions about life. In one post, readers were invited to respond to the following statement. I prefer darkness over light. One young woman whose screen name was Beyond Repair replied this way very honestly. She wrote, I prefer darkness over light. 
The darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. In the light, all things have a chance to be revealed. Darkness makes it easier to hide. In the dark, you cannot see what is coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. Lost in the dark is a great place to be because then you are free from what you were and can be what you want. The darkness is bliss. Now that's a darkness without hope. That's a darkness with despair, but it's also a darkness that is attempting to be named light, to redefine the darkness as light, to try to find some reason why dwelling in darkness can be a good thing. But ultimately, that's a darkness without hope. In Isaiah chapters 8 and 9, God's people find themselves squarely in the midst of darkness. And the darkness is this coming invasion by the Assyrians and the exile that's coming and the adversity, the hardship, the pain that is on their doorstep. It's a a time of genuine darkness in the lives of these people. Isaiah actually describes this darkness well. And he describes really what is the feeling of the people as they're in the midst of this in verse 17. He says, I will wait for the Lord, and here it is, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. God's people saw darkness and in the darkness felt as though God's face was hid from them. And some of you can relate to that and maybe currently can relate to that. Darkness can become so heavy that it seems as though God's face is hidden. So it begs the question, what is your hope? What is your hope when darkness seems to hide God's face. First, it's his presence. As the darkness of this Assyrian invasion is coming upon God's people, and as they are facing what will be times of significant hardship and pain and despair and adversity, there's a theme that gets repeated over and over. Starting back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. And then we see it again at the end of verse 8 in chapter 8. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Verse 10 Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The word there again is Emmanuel, that God is with us. 
when you face darkness and you face the despair and the hardship and the adversity that can descend upon your heart in those moments, you always have two sets of eyes that are functioning. The first is your physical eyes. And your physical eyes see the darkness. Your physical eyes see the threat. But there's always a second set of eyes, and that's the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith don't ignore the darkness. The eyes of faith see the darkness. But the eyes of faith see something deeper and something that is more real that the physical eye can't see. And that is that God is with you. That God is with you in the darkness. Now, the question becomes, how do I know that? I mean, how do I know God is with me? Especially if I'm not feeling it. <laughs> because that phrase, God is with us, is actually a phrase that can be used very generically across a variety of religions and across a variety of spiritual expressions, even in our day. So how do you know that God is actually with you when it seems as though his face is being hidden by the darkness? Chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. That's speaking of the Messiah. That's speaking of Christ. You know that God is with you because God has put on your skin in the person of Jesus. God has put on your flesh. God completely identifies with your situation. There's a withness. I mean, could God assure you any more of his presence than becoming like you? Which is what he did in Jesus. He became exactly like you, yet without sin. He put on your humanity. He put on the human experience. Which means that he understands what you are going through. You and I, when we are facing seasons of darkness, long for someone to identify with us, right? When you're hurting, when you're struggling, you long for someone to identify, someone that gets it, someone that can enter in with your struggle so that you're not alone because suffering and hardship and adversity can tend to isolate you. You want to know somebody identifies with you. I, my wife has said it really well. In times that, that, that she is struggling, she has told me, Keith, I need identification, not solutions. I need you to identify with what I'm going through. And then she'll use this phrase, and it's beautiful. She'll say, Keith, I need you to get in the mud puddle with me, not just try to get me out of it. Now, I'll confess, I am quicker to move towards solutions than towards identification. 
Jesus got in the mud puddle, so to speak, with you, completely identified with your human experience and your human condition. And what that means is that whatever darkness you're experiencing, Jesus is with you. In fact, there is no darkness that a human being has experienced or descended into that Jesus hasn't already descended. He is with you in the darkness. Richard Williams, a young surgeon and a Methodist lay preacher, and Anglican minister Alan Gardner went on mission or went as missionaries to Tierra del Fuego. In 1851, their ship that was going towards this land where they were going on mission was forced to winter in a very cold and harsh bay. And while they were in this bay, forced for the winter to be there, their supply ship never came. There was supposed to be a supply ship that would come and give them life-giving supplies. It never came. Every person on that ship, including the two missionaries, ended up dying of starvation and cold. But before they passed away, on Good Friday, April 18th, 1851, Richard Williams wrote this in his journal. Poor and weak though we are, our abode is a very Bethel to our souls. And God we feel and know is here. Several weeks later, on May 7th, Williams wrote this. Should anything prevent my ever adding to this. Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. When your supply ship doesn't arrive, God can turn your crisis, your darkness into a very Bethel for your soul. And you say, what does that mean? What did this missionary mean when he said it was a Bethel to his soul? Well, it comes out of Genesis chapter 28. When God speaks a promise to Jacob in a dream. And in the dream, God simply reiterated his promise to Jacob that he had spoken to his grandfather, Abraham. And after reiterating the promise, God said this to Jacob in Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob would go on to name that place Bethel, which means the house of God. But here's what's striking about what God speaks to Jacob. 
He says, I won't leave you until I've done what I promised. A lot had to happen before God would deliver on what he had promised of bringing them back to the land. In fact, a severe famine would come upon Jacob and his family. And then Jacob's sons would betray in an awful way his youngest son, Joseph, into slavery. Then they would spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt, awful, harsh slavery in Egypt then 40 years in the wilderness, all this adversity and hardship happened. And yet God's promise was, I will be with you. And I won't leave you until I have accomplished what I promised you. And so it is with you and me. There are seasons of darkness, of deep darkness and hardship and adversity in life. God's promise is, I will not leave you. I'm with you. And the evidence and the assurance of that, it's not just a feeling. The evidence is, I've become like you. I've put on your flesh in Jesus. It's Christ's death and life and resurrection that assures us that in those moments where the darkness feels so real, there's something more real. And there's something deeper behind it. And that is God's withness, his presence with you, right in the middle of it. What is your hope when darkness seems to hide God's face? First, it's his presence that he promises. But second, it's his power. It's his power as God's people were faced with this Assyrian invasion and all the darkness and all the adversity that would come with it, right? Their temptation was to fall into the conspiracy and the fear that was all around them. Right? That's verse 12 in Isaiah 8, in chapter 8. There was conspiracy. There was fear. Because the darkness was that heavy and that real. And they would conclude, potentially, as they looked around at the conspiracy and the fear and the darkness, that the darkness was winning or that the darkness had won the day. It's the same temptation we face. That when darkness presses in, it can feel at times through the physical eye like darkness is winning. It feels like it is winning. What was Isaiah's message to this people, to us today? Verse 14, and he, speaking of the Lord of hosts, and the Lord of hosts will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Sanctuary or a snare? Those are two very different experiences of God. A sanctuary or a snare? This, this verse actually gets picked up in the New Testament by Peter in his letter. And he explains the fulfillment of it. He says, Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders that has become the cornerstone. You think about the rejection of Jesus. They had rejected him. He was hung on a cross, a brutal, brutal crucifixion. He was laid in a tomb. It certainly felt like in that moment, 
that darkness had won the day. In fact, even darkness came on the earth when Jesus died. But then, of course, on the third day, he rose and burst out of that grave victorious. The darkness had not won. The darkness had been overcome. And so the message to us is that rejection and unbelief and the darkness that descends upon people or a culture or a world, it's not a threat to God. He's not threatened by unbelief or rejection or darkness. And the evidence of that is the, is the bursting forth of Jesus out of the grave, victorious over the darkness. In fact, the power of God is so far superior to any power of our world that could descend upon us. In Isaiah's time, it was this massive Assyrian army that was about to invade and destroy God's people. So far superior is God's power over the Assyrian army through anything that we face today, that it is defeated by, as we see here, the birth of a mere child. That's the victory in verse 6. When a child is born, that's the answer to these worldly powers and these dark powers that are pressing in on God's people, the birth of a child. And notice the work of this child Jesus in verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. What was the day of Midian? What's recorded in Judges chapter seven. It's when Gideon had assembled 32,000 people to go to war against Midian. And God said to Gideon, that's too many people. Because if you win the battle with 32,000, then I know what's going to happen. You're going to feel like you won that battle by your strength, your strategy, your wisdom. So God whittled Gideon's army from 32,000 down to 300. And then he gave him an outlandish battle plan. He said, here's how you're going to win. You're going to blow trumpets and smash jars. And that's what they did. And the enemy fled. This powerful darkness that was before them was defeated. And it was done so in a way that it was absolutely the act of God and not any type of human achievement. Verse 5 describing what this victory would be for God's people, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is just language saying the war's over. Everything's being thrown in the bonfire. And that phrase, will be burned, it's in the passive voice. That means very quietly here, what's being communicated is this is something God's gonna do. This is not something that that human beings are going to accomplish. This is something God is going to do. Salvation belongs to our God. He has broken the power of sin in your life. He has broken the darkness that brings so much sin and hardship and adversity into your life. Salvation belongs 
to God, and he's done this through the birth of a child. He's done this through the birth of Jesus. What happens as a result of this victory? And what happens as a result of the victory of Jesus over the darkness? It's really powerful when you see it in this text. In verses four to six, the word shoulder appears two times. In verse four, we see described the shoulders of God's people. That's your shoulders. That's my shoulders. And, and these are the shoulders that are bearing a burden, right? So you think about your life right now. You think about the darkness you're facing. You are bearing a burden. Every person here, to some degree, has some sort of burden that you are bearing on your shoulders. And even the language in verse 4 is recalling the awful slavery of God's people in Egypt. So the yoke, that described their toilsome way of life. The staff described the stick that was whipped across their backs. The rod described their, their harsh taskmaster. And, and what that describes is the same hardship and adversity you and I face in whatever season that we're in. It's a yoke. It's heavy. It bears down. It's a burden. That burden, it may be of your own sin. It may be the shame and guilt that is piling up on your shoulders from sin that you're involved with that is just weighing you down. Or it may be the burden of the sin of others that is affecting you and oppressing you or bringing harm to your life or, or severe adversity. We wear that burden. And yet the, short, the word shoulder appears again in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His shoulder there is a symbol of bearing authority. It means that Jesus Christ bears the authority over the sin in your life on his shoulder. It means that when you come to trust Jesus, that your shoulders are released of burden and Jesus bears the authority over that which burdens you. So the burden of your sin is not yours to bear. The burden of the sin of others that is adversely affecting you is not yours to bear. The burden of the sin of disease and of sickness is not yours to bear. It is firmly on Jesus' shoulders. And there's this release when we can release the burden so that it's placed on the shoulders where it belongs. And that is Jesus Christ, the one who has power over it and authority over it. I've shared this before but it's too good, so I'll share it again. There was a minister in Italy, and he was looking at the grave of this man who had died centuries earlier. And this man was an unbeliever. This man was not just an unbeliever, but he was antagonistic towards Christianity. He wanted nothing to do with it. But by what he did, there was some sort of fear in him because he had a large stone slab put over his grave. 
And on this stone slab, he had written, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. Evidently, when he was buried, there was an acorn that fell into his grave. And a hundred years later, this acorn had grown, split the slab, and was a towering tall oak tree. And so this minister, in, in looking at this, said this, if an acorn which has power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude. What can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? What immovable dark slabs are in your life? What dark, immovable slab is weighing down on your shoulders and functionally crushing you? Now, how we answer that question is really important because typically we'll answer that question by the undesirable circumstance that's in our lives. I mean, for God's people in Isaiah 8 and 9, the undesirable circumstance would be the Assyrians that were about to come in and take them into exile. And yet that wasn't the immovable slab in their lives. The immovable slab was their fear and their unbelief. And the same is true for you and me. We will be quick to describe that undesirable circumstance. That's life in a broken world. But that's not the immovable slab. The immovable slab is the fear and the anxiety and the bitterness and the despair in our hearts. It's that darkness that God's resurrection power will split and move away. The undesirable circumstance may stay, may go, that's in God's hands, but God's resurrection power splits those slabs of fear and insecurity and unbelief, so that you can see what is more real than what your physical eyes see. See, our physical eyes see the circumstance. But when God's resurrection power comes in and breaks the the fear and the anxiety and the anger and the despair in our hearts, he opens up the light for us to see Christ, what is that which is more real and deeper than the actual circumstance we're facing. And so the question is back to what dark immovable slab do you have in your life? You can name a circumstance or a situation, absolutely. But what is that doing in your heart? What fear is it producing? What anxiety? What what stress? That's what God's resurrection power splits so you can see the beauty of Christ and that Christ can become more real to you than the circumstance that's in front of your physical eye. What's your hope when darkness seems to hide God's face? His presence, his power, and finally, his love. We get to the why question here. Why is God with you? Why does God exert his power on your behalf? 
The answer is found at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right? We'll do this. What's this? It's everything that Isaiah has just written about. The birth of Christ. The government being on his shoulders. All, that, all the promises of what Christ would come and do. That's the this. The zeal of the Lord will do this. What is zeal? Well, another word for it is jealous or jealousy. Right? The zeal of the Lord, the jealousy of the Lord will do this. Now, when you and I use the word jealousy, we use it in a negative way, right? In the human experience, we talk about jealousy in a negative way because we talk about it as envy. But jealousy, when it's used to describe God, is very positive. And here's why. We see it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. This is at the, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, meaning other gods, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The Hebrew word for zeal is used to describe the jealousy or a husband's jealousy for the love of his wife in Proverbs chapter 6. Every one of you would frown upon a husband who is unaffected by another man flirting with his wife. Right? No, you would expect outrage. You would expect anger. You would expect, expect pain, right? Because that's a deep, deep violation. And that's a, that's a husband's jealous love, good love, protective love for his wife. And so it is with God. God's jealous love over you refuses to let other gods and other idols that you, you, your heart tends to run towards, refuses to let those destroy your life or make your life miserable because he knows that's what they do. And so his zealous or jealous love is to have you and you alone and you not give your heart away to all these other gods. Hannah Peterson was involved in a serious car accident about one month before her wedding day in Ontario. She broke her pelvis in three places, punctured a kidney, broke some ribs, suffered a concussion, and partial hearing loss in this collision. And yet she was dead set on making it to her wedding day and the wedding not being delayed. And so her father rolled her in the wheelchair halfway down the aisle. And then her fiance came and picked her up and tenderly carried her the rest of the way. She couldn't stand. She could not stand for her wedding service, but she wanted to stand for the vows. And so she stood for the vows. She couldn't even make it standing all the way through the vows. And so her fiance held her up for the vows. 
And what a, what a beautiful picture of human love. What an amazing picture of God's jealous love. You and I, wounded by sin, wounded by the gods and the idols that we give our hearts to, and yet he brings us to his son Jesus, and his son, in the scriptures called the bridegroom, picks us up, carries us, carries us, and binds up our wounds. That's God's jealous love for you. That does not mean that the dark situation or the dark circumstance is going to change. It may, it may not. That's in God's hands. But what it does mean is that God's love will heal your heart and bind up your wounds in the midst of whatever darkness you're facing. I love how John Piper puts it in his book, The Pleasures of God. He describes why God's love is superior to any love that you'll find in this world. Listen to what he says. Sometimes we joke and say about marriage, the honeymoon is over. We understand that. But that's because we're finite. We can't sustain a honeymoon level of intensity and affection. We can't foresee the irritations that come with long-term familiarity. We can't stay as fit and as handsome as we were then. We can't come up with enough new things to keep the relationship that fresh. But God says his joy over his people is like a bridegroom over a bride. He is talking about honeymoon intensity and honeymoon pleasures and honeymoon energy and excitement and enthusiasm and enjoyment. He's trying to get into our hearts what he means when he says he rejoices over us with all his heart. And I would add, he means by his zealous love. And add to this, that with God, the honeymoon never ends. So he has no trouble sustaining a honeymoon level of intensity. He can foresee all the future quirks of our personality, and he has decided he will keep what's good for us and change what isn't. Is darkness seeming to hide God's face? in your life? Is there a darkness that is pressed in that has you wondering if God has abandoned you or forgotten you? Are you looking at that darkness through your physical eyes and seeing nothing but dreams shattered, unbearable hardship? Or are you looking through the eyes of faith to a God who is with you, to a God who has and is carrying your burden through Jesus Christ, and a God who loves you with a jealous love that will never let go? Let's pray. Father, there is absolute common ground in this room between people who have been walking with Christ for decades to those maybe who have just trusted Christ to those that aren't in Christ yet. 
that are still trying to get questions answered about Christianity, there's a common ground across all of those, and that is darkness. It is absolutely common to the human condition because of the brokenness of our world and because of sin. And Father, if we're honest, we would say that there's a darkness that seems to be hiding your face. And yet you assure us that you're with us. You assure us that your power is far superior to any power of darkness. And you assure us that your love is deeper and wider than any love we could find on this earth. And all of that's not a feeling. It's evidenced by the birth of your son into this world. That Jesus, you put on our skin. You became like us, minus sin. And so you understand the darkness that has descended upon us. Oh, Father, would you help us by your spirit to believe that you're with us? To believe that you are carrying our burden and that your love is a jealous, zealous love for us. Prepare our hearts now for the Lord's Supper for this love feast that assures us of what we've just heard. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.